Welcome to another amazing episode of the Pace and Freedom Podcast, and I am your host, James Pace. On this amazing episode, I am joined in conversation with the one and only Dr. Valerie Tarico. We discuss abortion, a path ahead for the left and the right to make abortion obsolete, and so much more. But before we get started, let's cover some announcements. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and like my podcast on any of your favorite podcatchers. You can find the links to this podcast on all your favorite podcatchers. Don't forget to share, like, and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you click on the notification bell. And also on the website, you can find all of my episodes, check out previews of upcoming episodes, purchase awesome merchandise, and help me create more amazing episodes by making a monetary contribution. Now some brief announcements before we jump into today's conversation. As I have mentioned in the past recent episodes and on social media, in the near future, I will have the beautiful Miss Stevie Madison joining me on the podcast as my amazing co-host. So stay tuned for her and I to have great and amazing conversations with spectacular guests. I will also soon be adding a phone number that you can call and leave us a voicemail that we could address on the show. So watch out for that coming up soon. And with all of that said, enjoy this amazing conversation with Dr. Valerie Tarico. We're here with a very special guest. I am so excited. This is something that I've been kind of wanting to do for a while. Mentioned to several of my fans that I would have Dr. Valerie Tarico on my podcast, and they're so excited as well. So with that said, I'd like to have our special guest go ahead and introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself. Hi, my name is Valerie Tarico. I'm a, a psychologist by training, live in Seattle, Washington, and I've spent much of the last uh, 10 years writing for online news and opinion sites about religious fundamentalism because I am a former evangelical who graduated from Wheaton College of Billy Graham fame. And I also write about issues related to reproductive rights and women's role in society, in part as that relates to religion, uh, recovery from religion, and then contraceptive technologies and, um, and, and um, sort of family, family, broadly family planning issues. I kind of found you by like doing research when I was doing research, research about abortion and pro-choice and Myself as a libertarian, uh, I tend to be kind of on the fence with pro-life and pro-choice. And I tend to lean more pro-choice because of individualism. A person is, especially an adult, has the capacity to make a decision that works best for them uh, and the, their situation that they may be in. And that's kind of where I lean more uh, there has been a movement in the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian movement in general where people are starting to shift back to pro-life, and they have some pretty good arguments on that. So when I was doing my research about pro-choice to kind of figure it out for myself and figure it out and where I stand on that issue to discuss it, I found you and I thought, wow. This person is great to have on the show and kind of talk to us a little bit more about pro-choice and what she does and what her perspective is on it. So tell us a little bit about what you do. I am on the board of a group called Advocates for Youth, which is a D.C.-based nonprofit that focuses on youth, sexual health, and reproductive rights. And I also am a, have been a strong supporter of Planned Parenthood and on their board of advocates at some points in the past. And mostly I've worked on fostering access to better access to better birth control through my writing and through my advocacy here in Washington state. But I think probably one of the reasons that you reached out to me is because I have been public about my support for abortion access. One of my most read articles was titled, Why I'm Pro-Abortion, Not Just Pro-Choice. And in it, I talk about the reasons that I think that universal access to uh, abortion care is not just morally acceptable, but I think it is an, uh, an affirmative social and moral good. So in your right, I did read 
that article and I actually have it up right now in front of me. And one of the things that um, I know I took notes on was when you were talking about pro-abortion and its use as a reproduction control, and that's my words, not your words, um, but considering that there there are, and you kind of already answered this question by what you've said so far, but from what I can read in this article, it almost seems like abortion is like the go-to contraceptive for many young younger people. Is it because that's like they get to that point and now it's like too late to do anything else? Or is it because we're not doing enough for the younger crowd to get them the uh, birth controls that they need? Well, so I don't think abortion is a go-to for much of anyone. Even somebody who's strongly pro-choice like I am, abortion is an expensive, invasive medical procedure that is emotionally complicated for a lot of people. And even if it doesn't, even if from where I sit, I don't think there's a lot of moral complexity in early abortion. I, I, my own stance is why mitigate harm if you can prevent it? So I think of abortion as a harm mitigation strategy. And I think that we have a set of tools at our disposal that allow us to make most abortions obsolete at this point in, in, in history. And part of what pains me about that what I see and people who call themselves pro-life is that most of them seem to have very little interest actually in ensuring that prospective parents are able to make well-timed, healthy uh, parenthood decisions in advance of getting to the point that they need an abortion. Now, what would those kind of strategies be for parenthood? You know, like, is it uh, introducing contraceptives and birth controls to to their children? Or what would be kind of the education that you would give parents for this? Well, when I say prospective parents, I mean, young people who are in the position of making a decision about whether and when to bring a child into the world and with whom. And what we know is that that access to good information about sexuality and reproductive health reduces unintended, unexpected pregnancy and consequently reduces abortion rates. That We, we know that um, good, excellent access to the state-of-the-art contraceptives does the same thing. So you might not know this, but like um, on the pill, one in 11 couples who are relying on the pill get pregnant every year. And with condoms, that's closer to one in six. And it's because those contraceptives are imperfect, but it's also because human beings are imperfect. And there's a lot of user error in both of those methods. And so asking somebody, for example, asking a woman to take a pill at the same time every day for 40 years straight just leaves a huge margin for error. And what we know, in fact, is that only 15% of women on the pill miss three or fewer pills per month, at least according to the last data I saw, which is bold to be, to be fair. Um, right. And then, you know, with guys, I mean, having to have a method that you have to roll on your penis every time you have sex and get it just right. And, you know, that's basically hundred year old technology it, and that affects sexual pleasure for a lot of people. And then expecting, again, consistency and perfection in how people do that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So by contrast, when you look at state-of-the-art long-acting contraceptive devices, IUDs and implants, you get a dramatic change in the rate of surprise pregnancy and un, un, mistimed and unwanted pregnancies. So with um, the most effective method, uh, that implant that goes in a woman's arm, the rate drops to from about, what, what did I say, 1 in 11 to 1 in 2,000, I believe, wow. um, with an IUD that drops also kind of down closer to um, closer to 1 in 1,000. So I think 1 in 500 or something like that for a copper IUD, and then maybe 1 in 800 for a hormonal IUD. So we basically have this opportunity to make Yes, there are yes, there are abortions that happen because of pregnancies gone awry, either because of fetal malformations or because a woman's health um, doesn't um, allow for the pregnancy to be carried forward without risk to her. But the vast majority of abortions are 
as the right to lifers like to point out, those first trimester abortions that happen because of a mistimed or unwanted pregnancy. And those are the ones that we actually, if we were to team up on this, have the power to essentially eliminate. Yeah, I like how you said to team up. And I agree with that 100%. I have a lot of friends that are on the right and a lot of friends that are on the left. And I hear them bicker all the time, pro-life, pro-choice and whatnot. And I think the the biggest thing is education, right? And educating people on these different birth controls, the newer ones. I know for my wife, she had the implant on her arm and it was very, a lot of people would ask her, wow, that seems very invasive or whatnot. For her, she's like, actually it wasn't. It was easy as pricking the arm and you know, I didn't even feel it. She felt it more when she had it take it off when we decided that we were ready to have kids, uh, but it wasn't as invasive or as uh, scary as a lot of people may think. Mm-hmm. It, and it was very well, effective. It's it's very effective. And I was not, not all methods work for all women, right? Women's bodies re- respond differently to the different methods that we have. And that's part of why I really appreciate the fact that there are three of these long-acting devices now available to women in the United States that have very different mechanisms of action, right? So the copper IUD um, creates, um, releases copper ions that interfere with sperm motility. The hormonal IUD basically creates, tricks your body into creating a mucus plug at the opening to the cervix cervix like it would um, if a woman was pregnant. So it creates this internal barrier method. And both of those seem to have some bonus health benefits as well. And then the, the implant, like your wife had, is a kind of systemic um, hormone that is one of the two hormones that is also used in birth control pills. Can I say one thing about the abortion thing? And you could, I don't think we're going to get to a norm of intentional parenthood without abortion until men have better birth control options. I think it sucks that the best option for women has a one in 2000 annual failure rate and the best option for guys has a one in six annual failure rate. And then if an unintended pregnancy happens, I do think the decision has to default to the person most affected, which is the woman, even though oftentimes those a, a decision to carry forward an unexpected pregnancy is made as a couple. But um, I, I just like, I, I don't, I think it's a human rights issue for one thing for men. And it makes me crazy that, um, people treat it as if like guys should step up and kind of have birth control because women shouldn't have to carry this burden. It's not a burden. It's a freaking privilege to be able right. to manage your fertility in a way that our ancestors could have only dreamed of. But somebody should kick in the half a billion dollars it's going to take to give guys the same kind of ability to manage their fertility that women have. I think the future shouldn't be about men sucking it up and taking care of family planning on behalf of women or women taking care of family planning on behalf of men. I think that each individual should be able to manage their own fertility and babies should come into the world by mutual consent of two people who want to co-create a child. I 100% agree. I mean, if I had the choice, you know, now that we've decided that we want to have kids, obviously I can't say that, but exactly. But if it was back in the day, if it was where I could have done it instead of my wife or both of us could have done it just to make our, you know, make sure that we didn't have a child, I would have taken that option. uh, Definitely. Just because for me, I'm all about choices, right? I want to be able to have my own choices. I want to be able to have my own free will. And by not having options, I feel almost enslaved to whoever my partner may be, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I have to depend on them if they're going to, you know, on that person, on my partner, if they're going to <laughs> do some sort of birth control. Mm-hmm. Nobody should have to depend on anyone else for, exactly. for something as important as creating a family. Right. Absolutely. So yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think, you know, hopefully we get some people that come up with some really great ideas and come up with methods for men. Yeah, I agree with that. It's great. So we talk about the education portion. Where should that education be coming from? Is it supposed to be coming from public schools and public universities? Or is it supposed to be coming from parents? 
where is this education supposed to be coming from and where are we lacking? Where I don't think it's so much a matter of where is it supposed to be coming from is the fact that there are people mostly from the religious right who are uncomfortable with information freely flowing in society and people being able to provide accurate sexual health information in the context of education, in the context of pediatric care or adolescent medicine, and etc. So where should it be coming from? I personally think it should be freely flowing from people who have accurate information about health um, to young people who don't. And what when we erect barriers to that, what happens is that oftentimes what you get is young people exchanging, instead of accurate information with each other, exchanging misinformation. Right. I consider myself uh, a Christian, but being a libertarian, I know a lot of people would think that is very conflicting. I don't find it conflicting at all. It, you know, I, I believe in the free will of each individual and making this, you know, the best decisions for their situation. And it definitely was something that kind of, for me, made my final decision of separating from the church, right? Still being a Christian, still believing in it, but not being dogmatic and completely just being independent from the church. Because when my wife and I got together and our decision that, okay, we were not ready for us to have a child right now. Uh, economically, um, it's just where we were living at the time was not a, a good place to have a kid and it would not work out for us. And as soon as the church heard about this and as soon as her church heard about it, you know, that we were going through the birth control thing, they treated us very differently in a negative way. So that's where, you know, I was already kind of being a very, uh, very much independent from the church, but that was like the point where I was like, okay, I don't want anything to do with the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my wife always tells me, well, that's just because of your political beliefs and stuff. Her thing was that she just got tired of m- being made felt horrible about her decision. Um, but yeah, I, I do definitely see that. And I think people, again, it comes to that, misinformation, like you said, in the misinformation that churches give out too about some of these things. I've, you know, the church that I was uh, with would try to tell us, try to say, oh, you know, these contraceptives, they can uh, have uh, health issues later on. You might not be able to have a child later on. Um, you know, there, you might, if you do have a child, they might get autism and all this like misinformation that gets put out into not only the, the congregation, but they put it out to social media and then there's memes and um, that just miseducate people. And then right. they make it into the whole abortion thing, right? So I was just going to say that the reality is that that misinformation and all of those that kind of focus on what could go wrong, what could go wrong is actually theologically driven. And if you look at the history of the church, I think what we see is this sort of, if you will, natural selection process that um, that has to do with religion self-propagating when there is a higher birth rate. And so that it then becomes selected for in a religious context that kind of have these, these sects that keep women in that reproductive role and that kind of come up with a theological rationale for why God wants to be in control of your family planning, right? Um, and that then, in fact, serves the economic interests and the proselytizing interests, the, the ability of the church to become a, an effective self-replicator. Yeah, that, that in itself, I, I remember I was living in this neighborhood in, in Washington State near Linwood, and it was funny because there was this uh, church that put up a, like, almost like a fair, like a festival. And I remember they were basically almost handing out candy <laughs> to kids to get baptized. Like ran- these just random kids from the neighborhood and baptizing them 
to, and I don't know if this was just something to boost up their numbers or I, I don't really get the point of it, but that kind of what that reminded me of, you know, of, okay, if we just convince these people to have kids, this will boost up our numbers. And um, as you said, kind of, I guess, grow the church that way. It reminds me a lot of my church. They always would teach us, God wants you to have more kids, and this is what's going to make you a better person and um, get you into heaven. The more kids you get, the better chances of getting into heaven you have. So, Yeah, the let go and let God strategy. Um, right. You know, ironically, I've written before that that the people people who are opposed to abortion um, that that the let go and the let let God strategy is the way to produce the most embryos that end up flushing out because of the natural abortion process, right? So what we know is that somewhere between half and seventy percent of fertilized eggs flush themselves out because. Uh, reproduction is this big funnel, right? There's a lot more eggs and sperm that get, that get made than that meet up. There's a lot more that meet up than implant. There's a lot more than implant that go on to develop into a fetus. And then there's a lot more, um, fetal and infant life, especially in our historical ancestral context, than, uh, there are children who live to reproductive age to have children of their own. And the way that reproduction works in human beings and in a lot of animals is that that one of the reasons our bodies are designed to flush out some egg sperm combinations is because many of them are in fact imperfect from a genetic standpoint, that um, process of um, the cells splitting and coming together. And so, so the people who, if you will, whose bodies are flushing out the most embryonic life are people like the Dugers who refuse to, um, intervene in any way to limit the number of embryos that are being formed. So I want to talk about also, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's, this seems to be a shift in the libertarian movement to towards more pro-life libertarian movement used to be very much pro-choice. And as of recent and debates, there's a movement within the libertarian movement for pro-life. And the thing with that is that, the fetus is a human being and libertarians believe that every human being uh, has a natural right to, to life. And by um, having an abortion, you're violating that, that fetus's right to life. And it goes against the non-aggression principle that we believe in. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? And I know there's a big debate on when a fetus is considered a human being. And from what you've studied, and being a doctor, what what is your uh, thought on that? Well, so let me say, first off, I'm not a doctor. I'm a psychologist by training. Sure. Um, so I have a PhD. Um, I'm not any kind of expert in embryology, but I would, I, I need to, let me break that into two parts. So there's one part, which is why I'm not anti-abortion, which is kind of which addresses this question that you just asked. And then the second part is why I believe that abortion access is a positive social and moral good, which is, I think, a different set of questions. Right. So, right. so if you think about the moral continuum, there are things that are forbidden on one end, there are things that are acceptable in the middle, and then there are things that are kind of affirmative moral responsibilities on the other end of the spectrum. Like you see a kid wander out into the street, a two-year-old, and there's a car down the block. It's not, it's not, forbidden or really even morally optional to just stand by and watch that happen. Right. Um, right. And so, so I, I think we often don't talk, we talk about abortion as if the continuum ended at, is it forbidden or morally acceptable? And I think we ignore the whole question of affirmative responsibilities around um about around healthy reproduction and bringing children into the world under the best possible circumstances, allowing parents to nest before um, to amass emotional assets, economic assets, social support, stability in their relationship and health assets, if you will, before bringing a child into the world. And so those are the kinds of things that have to do with what I see as an affirmative responsibility towards family planning and with abortion as a part of that, because 
human beings are imperfect and contraceptives are imperfect and the process of reproduction itself, as I said earlier, is imperfect. But so why do I not kind of come down in this other space of it being forbidden if it's a human being? I find it a little bizarre that anyone denies that a an a fertilized egg or an embryo is human life. I mean, it seems, or even a human being, if you will, it's an entity and its DNA is absolutely human. So for me, um, the question is around personhood. And I think that our, I think the religious right is correct about that, that they, they said, okay, this is the thing we need to take on and we need to win on is the idea that the, um, that budding life is in fact a person, because if we can do that, then we can attach all of the rights and kind of responsibilities that have become codified in society and our moral codes and in our legal codes to this um, embryonic being, right? Um, and and for me, for me, morality is about the lived experience of sentient beings. So it's not about whether it has human DNA, which I think is what the Catholic bishops are going for, for example, um, they are very concerned about not just accruing personhood to rights to the fetus, but also eschewing personhood rights for members of other species. They do not want to kind of get involved in the idea of con con contemplating that there may be other species on earth that have also consciousness and self-consciousness that exists along a continuum, because the theology says that human beings are uniquely made in the image of God. So, but for me, kind of coming back to this, the idea of personhood has to do with, and our responsibility to other beings has to do with the question of what are they able to feel? Can they feel pleasure and pain? Can they have preference and intention? Um, can they value their own existence? Can they live in relation to other beings? And again, I think personhood exists on a continuum within its most rudimentary forms that sentience has to do with being able to experience, to, to kind of experience preference or to be able to experience pleasure or pain. And at its most complex is what we see in healthy, co cognitively healthy human beings who are able to relate to each other, who are able to be aware of their own existence, who are able to kind of value their own future and the future of other persons around them. So since the embryo lacks those qualities, to me, it does not have moral standing. And then what becomes the center of whether how we should think about abortion is about what are the positive benefits that accrue to children and women and men to, to actual living persons when they are when they are able to have access to abortion care. That's a pretty that's a you know really good argument. I always kind of miss out on that one in the in the several debates that I've heard, and people will bring up the personhood portion of it. Uh, you know, a fetus have personhood. It's, I've never really heard a really good argument on either side of the spectrum, and I think you kind of laid it out very simple for me and for the listeners. So that's pretty good. And one of the arguments that I've heard in this kind of resolves what you explained kind of resolves this, this debate that I've heard where for libertarians, if the, if the fetus is a person or a, a human being and our non-aggression principle states that, you know, we shouldn't kill uh, an innocent human being and, the argument on the pro-choice side of libertarians say, okay, well, but that human being is inside a person and is an invader, and a person has the right to vacate this this person from their property. And then the argument goes back to, yeah, but that person that's inside the 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 mother has been invited because they chose to have sex, and I think the whole personhood is part of it is the key. Uh, to all of it is, is this fetus, does it have the same rights as any other person? Do they have, you know, can they feel, can they experience? So I'm very curious of what my listeners will say, my pro, uh, pro-life pro listeners will say about that. But um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they have a set of arguments around those issues, I'm sure. But again, it's not for me just about abortion. It's about what is our moral responsibility to a whole array of sentient beings, right? So what is our responsibility? When my when my daughters got chickens when they were little, 
um, they, they had begged for years for chicks and I finally said yes. And then we got these chicks home and I said, okay, now you need to make a decision about whether your chickens are going to stay in a coop or whether they are going to go free in a yard. And, and I said, the way I would make that decision is by thinking about what kind, what is a chicken able to care about, right? So they care because if their beak is cut off as it is in many factory farms, because that's one of their primary sensory organs, right? They care about whether they're alone because they are flock animals. They care about whether they're hungry or thirsty or, or in pain. They care about whether they're too hot or too cold. They probably don't care a whole lot if one of their flock members disappears, at least not for long, because they don't have the capacity, as far as we can tell, to kind of form individual attachments. And they probably don't care a whole lot about their own longevity because, again, they're not able to formulate those concepts. And so the decision the girls faced was to whether to keep them in the coop where they would have longer lives or to let them go free where they might have shorter lives, but were more able to experience the world around them. And they made the decision to have their chickens go free in the yard, even though it might mean they would have shorter lives, which in fact they did. (laughs) So I listened to uh, your podcast with uh, Reason, um, The Right to Reason, which I thought was a really good podcast uh, episode. I really enjoyed it. I listened to the to the whole thing, and I really like how you describe these. There's certain language, certain vocabulary that different political tribes or even religious tribes will use to kind of self-identify themselves, so they know if they're talking to somebody else within their same tribe. I found that very interesting because one of the things that this podcast is kind of founded on was the the no trying to not to use labels such as left right conservative liberal socialist uh, for me everybody knows i'm a libertarian so that label is already kind of attached to my forehead but i found it very interesting in in that and if we leave out these labels if we leave out these certain words that people have a very easy have an easier time talking to each other and listening to each other. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. I think part of the the problem is that, you know, we, we are so far from our ancestral environment and the amount of information flow toward and around all of us is simply overwhelming. So one of the ways that we deal with that overwhelming amount of information is by coming up with simplifying heuristics in order to eliminate or narrow down uh, you know, possibilities. And, and one of the very easy ways to do that is to kind of identify a set of trusted messengers and to discount messages from other people. And so that I think is why you get an increasing amount of, of tribal signaling on both the left and the right, people who are using language that is specific to their tribe, people who use messengers or listen only to messengers that are specific to their tribe, because otherwise you end up in this well of information that that overwhelms um, e- even people who have a, a lot of tolerance for complexity. I mean, is this over? Is it a part of also just wanting to belong to a group or, you know, versus the too much information? I mean, because I know for me, for example, and I kind of, I don't know if it was just because of the way I was raised, I, I never really felt comfortable in any sort of group. And it felt like everybody, even in high school, you know, you had these cliques, uh, people trying to just belong somewhere. Is that part of that psychology as well? Or is it just as simple as they just can't handle too much information? I would use the word we rather than they, but uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I think I agree, that, I, agree. I think that, um, that this, this is not what we were built for, right? We were not built for this degree of complexity in the world around us and in the social dynamics around us. Um, I'm, I'm with you in that. My background, I think, predisposes me in specific ways. And I say I'm with you knowing I'm, I kind of see myself as falling on the left half of the political spectrum. Although, as you may know, I've written very critically about the social justice left. And, um, in fact, I wrote an article titled why, uh, you know, the righteous and the woke, why 
social justice warriors and evangelicals trigger me in the same way, because right. I think there are some quasi-religious dynamics that are emerging. And one of the things I come at as a, one of the ways I come at it as a former evangelical is kind of like, I, I got fooled once. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't have any interest in being party to uh, kind of insular groupthink in the way that I was during my young, my childhood, adolescence and young adulthood. And so I feel wary of being a part of a group that isn't able to be self-reflective and self-critical. So would you say that you're, I'm more about trying to be more of an individual and I think people should be more individual and in only as an individual working with other individuals, can we move forward and progress in society? And we see that that's kind of nearly impossible because of all these different tribes and people clustering, uh, if that's the correct word to use. In a, I mean, how would you think that if we simplified and just have everybody as one big group versus individuals, would that be better? Or would it be better if people were just individuals working together? One of my clients years ago quoted a saying to me that I've hung on to ever since because I think it is helpful in terms of constructing categories of information. So the saying was, in some ways, I am like all other people. In some ways, I am like some other people. And in some ways, I am like no other person. Right. So if you think about that, that our kind of shared humanity, our unique individualism, and then in the center are the tribes that we belong to. And I think when you think about society as a whole, a healthy society, you are struggling to hold those three parts of our identity in a kind of a balanced tension with each other. So when you look at the Enlightenment, for example, I think that the the Enlightenment values and um, the social liberal traditions focus on both our shared humanity and our unique individualism and the idea of allowing, kind of creating universal human rights in a way that allows our unique uniqueness and our individuality to flourish. And I think when I look at the left right now, that that to I have to give credit to the idea that there's been some under focus, under acknowledgement of the fact that our, the tribes that we belong to, the, the experiences that we share with some subsets of other people are also powerful in shaping our lives and our experience and our opportunities. Um, I get concerned in that if you look too strongly, if you center too strongly on that tribal aspect, as identity politics does, that what we're basically doing is reverting to what human beings have done through most of human history, right? Which is to center the identity in the tribe to the detriment of being able to allow that individualism to flourish. Right. What are, what are your thoughts just out of curiosity? Uh, Cause I haven't seen, I've read a lot of your articles and uh, I, you know, it normally talks about either the right or the left um, and certain religious groups. I, uh, I never, I haven't seen, and maybe I missed it. Um, you know, I try to scan through all your articles and your blogs. And what what are your thoughts about us libertarians? I think I, I'm not an expert on libertarianism. To to the best of my ability to discern, um, that there there as much as government can be abused and abusive. It is the way we do things together that we can't very well do as individuals. And, and so I think I wouldn't invest in a corporation that didn't have a governance structure. I wouldn't give money to a nonprofit that didn't have a governance structure because we, there are different kind of ways in which we need to be able to make decisions to do that effectively and efficiently um, for a group of people who have some shared set of interests or objectives. So uh, when I sometimes hear like one of your guests said, if I could just push a button and get rid of government, I'd push that button a bunch of times. I'm like, I think you're talking about like Somalia because I don't know of any flourishing society in which people don't have structured ways to come together and make these kinds of shared decisions that allow us to create infrastructure to have, as people say, the rules make the game to be able to have rules that allow um, us to kind of interact with each other without having to resort to violence. 
or to be able to have, you know, I think like I think of the market as literally like a Greek agora, right? In some ways that government builds the the market, whether that's a physical market in a Latin American country or, or in Greece or whether it's the kind of the infrastructure and rules that then allow pe- individuals to come together to create and innovate and buy and sell. Right. Now, and I think you and I probably agree from what we've been talking about, you know, the whole tribalism thing and how it kind of disallows or prevents from individuals from flourishing. I think I also agree with you in that for me, I tend to lean, and I, I mentioned that on my last episode, I tend to lean more towards being a, uh, a classical liberal uh, for smaller government, but there should still be a government to, I think it should be as small as, you know, protecting life, protecting property rights and, and uh, settling civil disputes. And I feel that the small, you know, if we can just have these communities with governments, and as you said, you know, corporations have governments, nonprofits have governments, they just call them different things. They call them boards or whatever. And I think they serve a very essential uh, purpose and kind of laying out agreed ground rules by everybody. Um, so I, I agree with you there. I do sometimes look at anarchy and it is attractive at times, but I'm not fully there yet. <laughs> yeah. I do believe that, you know, <laughs> uh, it's kind of like, I don't know if you ever seen that meme where there's the guy with his girlfriend and sees another girl passing by and kind of looking at it like, Oh, that's, it's kind of a, a attractive, but, I, I for now stick with my with my classical liberal kind of thought process. Uh-huh. Uh, so I mean, we all get so frustrated, right? And it's really hard because I think, as I said, the information is overwhelming. I think that the kinds of the complexity of our world, uh, the human world, right? The kind of right. ways in which we interact with each other and the constraints that we have on those, it, it, it can be crazy making. Um, and it, and I think it can be really tempting to think, oh, it would be so much better if we just blew it all up. Um, but I kind of think that's sloppy thinking. And you know, it's, it just seems a little lazy. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would think so. And I, but I kind of see the same thing with some of the thinking of let's try to put everything onto one group of, of people to just make all the decisions for us, you know, at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, and not saying that you believe in that, but because you don't, your your views on religion specifically kind of is that to have a religious group make all these decisions for you and have this thought that God wants you to follow these very strict rules and not have, not be able to think for yourself uh, is dangerous and just primitive. No, not primitive, but I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for, but archaic maybe. Mm. And definitely that's the fear that a lot of libertarians and maybe the right, well, the right, I see them as the same as the left at times. When it comes to, you know, they just kind of feel that there should be this one person that makes all the decisions for them and and not be able to have a, a, a thought for themselves and be open minded and think for themselves. It, you kind of lose that free will. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, as you might imagine, as a former evangelical, I'm somewhat paranoid about authoritarianism. Right. And right. so it frightens me the degree to which the religious Theocrats have been able to make inroads into political power in this country. And I worry a bit that that the cogs of our democracy are stripped, that the founding fathers put into place a bunch of safeguards and checks and balances, and then, you know, power seeks power. And we've got, you know, 200 years and a whole bunch of new technologies that kind of advantage, you know, in which people are kind of trying to kind of figure out where the loophole is, how to break it, how to get disproportionate power. And I worry that with the advent of 
some modern communications technologies that that you know the the propaganda and the manipulation the people who are doing that the the madmen if you will it, those strategies continue they evolve at a much faster pace than our own individual human evolution and our ability to defend against those absolutely so i don't know how surprised you are of how much you and i can agree on you know being from different kind of ideologies and and whatnot but i i like when i have these conversations with very thoughtful people that have the ability to kind of free think and um regardless of what where they're at in the political spectrum so i greatly appreciate this is what i'm trying to do with this platform is to get people from all sides and have these conversations and realize we have a lot more in common than what we think and we can actually work together to come up with, you know, to progress in society without relying on tribalism and relying on these uh, figureheads. Yeah, and you know, work things work things out. So, what I worry about, and you know, like regard to social media, for, I, I I've gotten to the point where I feel like the only way for people to stop getting sucked down these rabbit holes of misinformation is to literally just not expose yourself. Like, don't don't do it. Just like, don't go to Facebook and spend your time reading articles because, because so much of it, even if it's not clickbait on the surface is clickbait in the sense that, that there's an oversimplification and basically people cherry picking different, different partial truths in order to kind of weave a story that is wholly misrepresenting the person or the situation, right? So right now, because I'm on the left half of the political spectrum, I go to my Facebook and and you would think that that Klobuchar, Sanders, Bloomberg, Biden, Buttigieg, you know, they were that they were like just basically almost satanic, that they're super shitty people because whoever kind of, whoever is trying to advocate for one of the others cherry picks their story. You know, they've been in the public um, view long enough that you can pull out incidents or whatever. And then you knit that into a narrative. You you could do the same thing to me, right? If I had enough visibility, you could probably go back through my articles and extract in decontextualized statements that I've made and knit them together to make someone think, Oh my God, this woman is a sociopath and she should be locked up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. So I think that I feel like what we don't we haven't yet figured out how to effectively protect ourselves against these partial truths. And part of the problem is that, like, when I look at the left and right half of the political spectrum, I think, you know, the the value of having a two party system or a multi party system is that each of us is somewhat blinded by our own lived experience and we hold partial truths and perceive them to be whole truths, it's only by kind of bringing in a diversity of perspectives and wrestling through to some complicated common ground that we actually are able to come up with a view of that more more accurately reflects the complexity of reality, right? And and instead, if what we do is we toggle between the insularity on the left and, we, and the insularity on the right, um, or the insularity of libertarianism or whatever it is, right. right? That then we end up kind of just in a bubble of partial truths and the ping ponging between these incomplete and broken perspectives that lack nuance because they aren't informed by those that we disagree with. So I think you're doing a great thing by attempting to kind of bring some of those perspectives into, into contact with each other in, in the form of your, your podcast. Oh, thank you. And I couldn't have put that better myself. I mean, I think that was perfect and a perfect closure there. Uh, so thank you so much for that. Um, so Absolutely. How, let's give you a plug in here. How can people find you? How can they read their your articles and find out what you're doing? People can find all of my articles. They get published at online news and opinion sites. I've been writing a lot less in the last year, partly because I'm not quite sure how to contribute value in a context in which we're all essentially preaching to the choir. 
Um, but at ValerieTorico.com, I think that some of the articles that might be most relevant to our conversation today are the one that we mentioned about abortion, why I'm pro-abortion, not just pro-choice. I think that another one that might be particularly relevant is um, the one that I mentioned, the righteous and the woke, why evangelicals and social justice warriors trigger me in the same way. And then um, there's one that I wrote about progressive narrative and conservative narrative. The subtitle of one is um, why some progressives are tearing each other apart. And I can't remember the first part of the title. <laughs> you may know it uh, or you may have another article to suggest. Uh, no, I mean, I've read all of those actually. I, I don't have them all pulled up right now, but they're all great. I think again, if, there wasn't already kind of, you know, you explain what your views are and stuff. If I had just read this article in, say, a libertarian website, I would think that you were a libertarian. And I'm pretty sure if somebody on the left would read the, read your articles on a more left-leaning website or newspaper or blog, they would think that you're on the left. And surprisingly enough, I would say that somebody that reads your articles on a right-wing uh, spectrum blog or media would think that you're on the right. So I, I think that's what popped the most for me is that if I, without putting labels, I pretty much agree with a lot of what you said. I don't agree 100%, but I agree with a lot of what you've talked about and what you wrote about. So, Well, thank you. I, I don't even agree with 100% with things that I've right? I mean, right. isn't that the idea that we keep learning and evolving and growing? And Exactly. Um, you know, that whole, if you can't change your mind, are you sure you still have one? Right. Exactly. All right. So thank you so much, Valerie, for being on my podcast. This is a great honor and privilege for me, and uh, I greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show. It's seriously an honor to to have you reach out and create this conversation. Thank you.